One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Protests in Iran continue to grow. So we called Pantsuit Politics resident Middle East expert Carrie Anderson to help us make sense of it all. This is Sarah from the left, and you're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. So as you could probably tell from the intro, it's just me here with Carrie. Beth got unexpectedly very sick. Hopefully she will be back Tuesday when we have a really special episode with Michael Ware we're super excited about. But until then, Carrie is here to help us make sense of the news coming out of Iran, which has been pretty intense over the last few weeks. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's been a really interesting time. So, Carrie, before we get started, tell our listeners about your areas of expertise. So I'm a political risk analyst, uh, which I've done for a number of years now. So I do consulting work um, mostly on the Middle East, but also on a number of other sort of global issues. I also write um, op-ed pieces on a regular basis for Arab News, which is an English language newspaper based in Saudi Arabia. She's also our phone-a-friend Middle East expert, literally where I'm like, I have some questions about Saudi Arabia. And I just email Carrie and she explains and it's all amazing. And I don't know what I did before, and I don't know what other people do without their phone-a-friend Middle East expert. So <laughs> thank you. You're welcome. So tell us about some of the protests um, coming out of Iran. They seem to be pretty wide-ranging, not super organized, and have turned violent in several cities. 
Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting. There's, I think some important differences between what we're seeing right now, what we saw in 2009, which was the last time there was a significant nationwide protest movement known as the green movement. Um, so what we're seeing at right now is different in several ways. Um, first of all, it, it is less organized. It has no clear leadership. Um, it is more broadly spread across the country. We have seen protests in the capital city, Tehran, but they actually started um, in another city, Mashhad. They've been more diffuse than the 2009 protests were. Also, this started very differently. So the way that these appear to have started, and it's difficult to get really accurate information, um, but what appears to have happened is that there were actually some hardline conservative elements who opposed the moderate President Hassan Rouhani, and they seem to have started some of the initial protests to be anti-Rouhani. Hmm. Um, but that got out of their control. And what we're seeing now is a mixture of protests focused on some of the original economic grievances that they were trying to use against the president which is actually a little strange in some ways, but um, but now it is combined with some of those broader political elements. We have seen not only um, uh, criticisms from protesters about Rouhani, but also even direct criticism um, against the supreme leader. And that's a, that's a very big deal. Well, because I think it's so interesting that you say they started as conservative protests because the the narrative now is definitely sort of, is this democratization? Is this following in the footsteps of the Arab Spring or the Green Movement? So it sounds like they started one way and quickly got out of control. I read a lot of pieces that really pointed to the economic unrest. I read one piece that argued basically the upper crust used to have sort of the the good sense to not flash it around in people's faces, sort of in ways in which they were taking advantage of the economy. And the younger generation is not doing that. And people are just kind of mad. Yeah, so I read that too. Um, I'm not saying that's not true, but I think it's kind of an oversimplification. So to give a little bit of a background of how we got here in an economic sense, um, and, and to emphasize, I think at this point, the protests are about economic grievances and political grievances. Mm-hmm. We actually need to sort of go back to the president before the current president, President Rouhani. So the previous president was President Ahmadinejad. I remember him. Mm-hmm. Um, and the 2009 Green Movement protests were very specifically against him when the people felt um, that the voting in which he was reelected had been rigged. Was this related to the—this was part of the Arab Spring protest, though, right? No, it actually preceded the Arab Spring protest. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, they're not—they're not—there's some connection there. But, right. So— under Ahmadinejad, he pursued a very populist economic policy in Iran. And at the time, oil prices were super high, so he was able to sort of get away with it. Um, but basically spent huge amounts of money on his supporters um, and fiscally completely irresponsible, drove inflation way up. So by the time President Rouhani came in, who's a very different type of president, he's a very moderate political figure, Inflation was like 40%. Whoa. I know, it was crazy. Um, and historically, that tends to prompt a lot of protests in Iran. 
So Rouhani worked very hard on reining in the fiscal spending and on bringing down inflation, which he somewhat recently finally got down to um, 10% or slightly under the double digits. So actually, in terms of inflation, Iran is far better off under Rouhani than it was before. Hmm. Um, but there is still unemployment in general is around 12%. It's much higher among young people. And Iran is an extremely young country. Um, 60% or more of the country is actually under the age of 30 years old. Wow. So that, that's a really important component of everything that's happening here. Very, very young country and not nearly enough jobs and opportunities for young people, especially for other people too. So that's kind of the background to all of this. One of the key sparks was that Rouhani released a budget proposal um, earlier in December um, in which they've been trying to cut subsidies as part of their fiscal responsibility plan. So they've been trying to cut subsidies on fuel, for example. So prices of fuel are going to be going up if they implement the plan. Um, and so some of these basics that a lot of Iranians rely on might be coming a bit more expensive, even though inflation overall is down. But at the same time, in his speech, uh, when he released this plan, Rouhani really emphasized that there's a lot of money going to a whole bunch of state and quasi-state sort of religious institutions. Hmm. And he's been going after them. Oh, that's why uh, the conservatives got mad. Exactly. Gotcha. And people are really upset about that because they... They do it. They have trouble buying basic goods, but then there's all this money going to all these different sort of state and quasi-state institutions. So exactly. So I think what we initially saw was then the conservatives trying to flip that narrative around on Rouhani and use these economic grievances against him. And it's just completely gotten out of their hands from then. Though I should note, they really are still trying to regain that narrative. There's um, a lot of regime use of media trying to, to say, oh, this is about economics and it's about anti-Rouhani economic grievances. So the government has responded in several ways. They've sort of restricted the use of social media and they've organized their own protests. Is there anything else that you see them doing that you think is important or can you speak to more speak more to their response? Yeah, I think th those are both really good points. Today we saw um, large, so we're recording on Wednesday night, so today we saw large um, pro-government demonstrations, so that's one effort um, on the part of the regime. They've been somewhat restrained in cracking down on these, but there has been some security crackdowns, yeah. both in terms of some people killed and a number of arrests. We don't really know how many. Um, there has been some violence on the part of protesters, too, and, and just and not sort of organized violence, but more like chaotic violence, which is very different, say, than the, the 2009 protests. Hmm. They've also been claiming, the, the government has been claiming that this is foreign government interference, although everything I've read has said there's no indication of that. But that seems to speak to something Iranians can connect to because of our past interference in their government. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I, I think this is, this is completely made up, but 
it does have, a, it is a salient point with Iranians, um, yeah. which really goes back to a lot of things in their history, including um, the United States, the CIA was specifically involved in overthrowing uh, essentially a democratically elected leader in the 1950s because he wanted to nationalize their oil industry. Mm. So there is, and, and we in the United States supported the Shah, who has been overthrown in 1979. Um so there is a long history of the United States and other, uh, the, the Brits and the Russians also interfering in Iran. So it is an easy argument for them to make. Um, but it absolutely seems very clear to me that this is really an Iranian nationalist movement. So where do you th- see these protests going? So it's really hard to tell um, today after the pro-government demonstrations, the government has basically declared this over. It is possible that it's fizzling out. It's also possible that we're going to see renewed anti-government demonstrations. I'd particularly look for that on Friday. Uh, Fridays tend to be a big protest day in the Middle East. Hmm. Um, But in terms of sort of the slightly longer term, I think there's a couple ways of looking at it. One is that for economic and political and demographic reasons, Iran is just going to be a country that in a cyclical way experiences periodic outbursts of large-scale protest that then the government, which is very experienced at cracking down on that, cracks down on and makes a few minor reforms and moves on. So that's definitely one possibility. At some point, though, I think every time this stuff comes up, Um, Those who analyze the country have to be asking ourselves, when is there something different? When is this a sort of Arab Spring type situation? Or uh, Iran is a country that had a successful revolution in 1979 that overthrew a deeply entrenched government. So it's always fair to ask, is there something different this time that is going to make this a a new situation. And I really feel at this point, we don't have good information to say yes or no on that. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Carrie is going to share her thoughts on the United States relationship with Iran. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. 
We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box. Salon grade tools. Your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love, though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsu for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy so carrie you said this awesome breakdown of sort of past administration approaches um in the sort of democratization in the Middle East with specifically with regards to Iran. Um, and we posted it for our patrons, but I wanted you to share sort of your overview of different administrative approaches leading us up to our current president. I hesitate to call it an approach, but let's pretend it is. And so share some of that with our listeners. Cause I thought it was really, really helpful. Yeah, sure. So yeah, I, I wrote that in response to sort of a Twitter conversation, um, looking at how the United States in the past and today um, deals with this question of when there's a big protest in the Middle East. And I think we could extend this to the broader world, but I'll stick with sort of my region here. When there's a big protest, whether it's Iran or the Arab Spring or whatever, how should the United States respond? And of course, on the one hand, many Americans want us to support um, protesters who are calling for democracy or human rights or greater political freedoms. But this is there's a big conundrum here. And I think the, the sort of critical problem that our different presidents have faced is, on the one hand, we feel we have a need to say something. And, and also, um, 
a lot of the time when there are protesters in the world who are putting their lives on the line to demand greater political freedoms, they often want to be heard and supported by other people in the world, and particularly by the world's superpower and the the best well-known democracy that talks about the importance of these things. So on the one hand, there is a need to say something in support of these people. On the flip side, there's a couple of problems with that. And, and one of the big problems is that many governments, this is certainly true in the Middle East, as we've seen it in Iran, we've seen it in Egypt and others, the regimes are often very ready to say, oh, these protests aren't genuine protests by our own people. They are concocted by hostile foreign actors primarily the United States. Which is exactly what they've already started doing with these protests. Yes, exactly. We've heard the Supreme Leader suggest that um, and other Iranian officials as well. And so it's, it's really a way that they use to undermine the credibility of the protesters. And so for the United States, on the one hand, if we say nothing, we're sort of leaving people in the lurch. On the other hand, if we say something, then we're handing a weapon into the hands of the people who are trying to repress them. Mm. Can you give us a quick overview of past administrations' approaches to these types of protests? Sure. So I first went to the Middle East and first came to D.C. in the the late 90s under the Clinton administration. So I'll start there. So um, at the time, there was a really dominant sense in Washington of what has often been referred to as Middle East exceptionalism which was the idea that we promote democracy and freedom all around the world except the Middle East. Mm. And the thinking was the Middle East is just not ripe, not not fertile territory for this, and that we would risk stability, we would risk our allies, a lot of concern that if you had democracy in the Middle East, the Muslim Brotherhood or other types of Islamists would take over. So that's kind of where things started when I first got into this. Well, let me ask you this. How different was this view between the parties or was the Middle East exceptionalism sort of shared among Democrats and Republicans at the time? So it was pretty well shared between Democrats and Republicans and and generally in the foreign policy community. There were some exceptions, exceptions, but they tended to be pretty small. Because is that Am I wrong in feeling like that's usually the case, that there's not necessarily a giant break in party approaches to foreign policy until maybe recently? Yeah. I mean, on the Middle East, there were not major party differences that I can immediately think of until you got to the Bush years. So tell us what happened then. So, of course, we have 9-11. That changes some things. But then particularly with the Bush administration, you had the neoconservatives, um, referred to often as the neocons. And they had a very different take. I'm, I'm simplifying. They were a much bigger concept than this alone. But they looked in the Middle East and said, no, this is a place where we can and should promote democracy and human rights. And that was a big part of the argument behind invading Iraq and then not only invading Iraq for the sake of WMD, but then also trying to get a democracy up and running in Iraq. And the neocons thought, if we can do this in Iraq, democracy will spread through the rest of the region. So 
democracy promotion and nation building was a really big deal under the Bush administration, something that they pushed very hard. And that was very different from the Clinton administration in terms of their Middle East approach. So that's really interesting. Tell us how that ended. Democracy flourish and spread from Iraq. (laughs) Sadly, no. Um, And I should maybe state my my own allegiances. I, I think the Middle East, I think people there genuinely want much more political freedoms and rights than they have. Whether they'd actually label that democracy is more complicated. So I, I am not a Middle East exceptionalist. I really disagree with that perspective. And, I, and I've done some democratization field work in the Middle East. But then with the neocons, they kind of went to the other extreme. They were sort of driven by ideology. They often had not spent time in the Arab world talking to a diverse array of Arabs. Well, and it seems to me in post 9-11 democratization, as much as it could be dressed up as benefiting the Middle East, I am sure so many of the neocons were really motivated by a belief that democracy in the Middle East would protect the United States from further terrorist attacks, which I understand. But approaching a foreign sovereign nation's government and what would work and what wouldn't from a very self-interested point of view is most likely not the best idea. Absolutely. That's, that's completely true. And and they tended to, many of them made the argument that, Oh, Arabs don't like the United States and don't like Israel only because their repressive governments use the United States and Israel as scapegoats. Mm. And there is some truth to that. They did use the United States and Israel as scapegoats. However, it's more complicated than that. Right. <laughs> and they tended to very much simplify these things. They tended to listen to very specific voices and ignore the expertise of a lot of people who knew the region well and ignored a lot of voices there. And so they, they got into the whole quagmire in Iraq, which obviously did not lead to a lot of democracy around the region. And unfortunately, the situation in Iraq further undermined U.S. credibility, which, which, and this is another sort of point about the problem with the United States trying to promote democracy and support protesters in Iran and the rest of the region, is that our credibility has already been badly damaged by the fact that we have a lot of double standards, Mm -hmm. Um, whether under Clinton or under Bush or even to some extent under Obama, um, not to some extent, certainly under Obama. It is very clear that the United States promotes democracy and human rights in certain places and not in others. Mm. And people in the Middle East are very, very aware of that. So it's kind of hard, even before the Trump administration, which I think has taken this to an entirely new extreme, it is always been difficult for the United States to promote these values when we're clearly not consistent in how we do that. And by that, you mean definitely Saudi Arabia, because the neocons (laughs) under George Bush might have thought that was really great, while simultaneously having a very close relationship with Saudi Arabia, despite the source of so many of the terrorists in 9-11 coming from Saudi Arabia. So, I mean, I would be angry and I would consider us hypocrites if I lived in the Middle East as well. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. 
I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Well, and I think certainly the United States has long supported a number of authoritarian regimes um, in the Middle East, and, and people are very aware of that. And I think, you know, you mentioned Saudi Arabia. I think that things get really interesting there under the Obama administration when we have the Arab Spring. And the Obama administration was sort of torn between those who said, look, we have to support these protesters who are out there calling for democracy, calling for freedom, versus those who said, wait a minute, the Mubarak regime in Egypt 
are our allies and they ensure stability and they ensure the peace treaty with Israel. And we don't want to just see them overthrown. And when the the Obama administration was at first very hesitant, they took a lot of time to really kind of go against the Mubarak regime. But once they reached a certain tipping point and spoke against the regime, Saudi Arabia and a number of other allies, but particularly Saudi Arabia, of course, were very angry because in their mind, the United States had just damaged regional stability, but had also overthrown an old ally. Mm. Um, and that really damaged U.S. The relations between the United States and Saudi Arabia. And then when the Trump administration came in, that was one of the things that they saw themselves as really working on repairing. So th- there's there's a tension here always between you know, who, who are our people? Are, are the people we want to support our allies that some people think ensure stability? Or are they the people um, who are protesting? And I think that's often a very difficult decision for a lot of different presidents, whether it's Bush or Obama, or I don't think it's that difficult for Trump. I think he's been pretty clear on his alliance there. Well, I think what's so important when there's a tension and a complicated history and relationship in the region between all these different players, that everything you say, every action you take, be carefully calibrated, carefully orchestrated, carefully articulated, something mm-hmm. that perhaps President Obama overcorrected and was too careful and too hesitant. However, I do not trust President Trump to take a careful approach in what he says or does with relation to this um, very complicated relationship in the with Middle Eastern countries. Yeah, the, the Obama administration worked very hard. They, they understood that there is this dilemma in terms of how the United States can do both good and do harm by publicly supporting protesters. And so they tried very hard to calibrate that. Now, I don't think they always got it right. Sometimes I disagreed with them, but they understood that and they were trying. And and we won't always get it right. It's kind of impossible. But the current administration is not trying to calibrate that. They have just decided that in the case of Iran, a country that they don't like, um, or a government at least that they don't like, that they are going to speak in favor of the protesters and sort of you know, consequences can can be whatever. But then in countries where they do like the regime, uh, I don't I don't think we see that at all. I mean, Egypt being one example. Well, and it was so interesting. And much of the reporting, people would say, well, I'm not going to participate in these protests because all they're going to do is be exploited for the United States and Israel's purposes through Netanyahu and Trump. These They don't really care about us, but they most certainly will use these protests to achieve what they want to achieve. And I thought that was so telling that people were like hesitant to participate in um, critiquing or trying to improve their own government because they're too afraid of how we're going to exploit it. I mean, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, I guess, even when it's your own repressive government. Yeah, and there's a lot of truth then. I don't know how widespread. I mean, I, in other words, I don't know how many people didn't go out into the streets because of that, but it's definitely a factor. And I've read some of the the similar responses. And I think it's important to know with Iran and, and with many countries, a lot of Iranians, especially a lot of the young Iranians, they want change, whether that means a new government or reforms or whatever. But they are nationalists. 
they are proud of their country and they often have a lot of affection for the American people and American culture and maybe would like to come study here, but they do not want um, the U.S. government dominating their country. So that that's really something that sometimes I think can get lost in the discussion on, on this side of the world. Well, there's a lot to discuss, but you have definitely helped us understand better what's happening in Iran right now and what has happened with regards to the United States in the past. And it's very helpful. Thank you so much, Carrie, for taking time and helping us see our way through this. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And, and as always, thank you so much for what you and Beth do. And what's your Twitter handle so people can follow you? At KBA Research. I mean, we don't really need to tell y'all because we retweet and talk to her all the time, but just on a just in <laughs> case that you did need her Twitter handle, um, you should definitely follow. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We're wishing Beth lots of um, healthy get well wishes. And until next week, keep it nuanced, y'all. Thank you so much to our executive producers, Nicholas, Chad, Tracy, Leslie, Sabrina, and George. You can join us on social media, Instagram and Facebook at Pantsuit Politics and on Twitter at Pantsuit Politic, no S. And if you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com or reviews are always helpful and you can leave one through the Apple Podcast app. Thank you to Dante Lima, the composer of our Pantsuit Politics theme music. 